0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Few brands so capture America's rough-hewn individualism as much as Harley-Davidson. But the motorcycle firm is beset on two sides. It's become entangled in the Trump administration's tit-for-tat trade war, just as changing demographics have started to make it downshift. ...and we'll be delving into philosophy that has relevance to autonomous vehicles. Future self-driving gizmos will have to make the kinds of ethical decisions... ...that have tied philosophers in knots for decades. But first... Today marks the 40th anniversary of the revolution in Iran... The uprising changed the country profoundly. It brought a hardline Islamic regime into power that to this day clashes with its neighbors in the region and Western countries too. Some American administrations have tried threatening Iran's leaders. President Trump's national security adviser John Bolton, issued a warning last year.
1: That if you cross us, our allies, or our partners, if you harm our citizens, if you continue to lie, cheat, and deceive, Yes, there will indeed be
2: hell to pay.
0: Former President Obama's administration painstakingly negotiated a nuclear deal with Iran that Mr. Trump withdrew from. But in the face of both threats and compromises, Iran's behavior continues to be a headache. Why is it so hard to find common ground with Iran? The roots of the answer go back to the tumultuous events that began in 1978, when millions of Iranians took to the streets to protest against their unpopular leader, Shah Reza Pahlavi.
3: And there began in 1978 first uh, small demonstrations which spread very rapidly, leading to the revolution in 1979.
0: Shaul Bahash wrote for The Economist in the run-up to what would become Iran's Islamic revolution.
3: The first demonstrations were a kind of a sudden explosion which very quickly spread.
0: It was the spark that began a fiery few weeks. They changed the country, the region and the world. Professor Bachash, as he now is, says the rumblings began in the early 1970s. The Shah was already perceived as too close to the West. With his extravagant lifestyle, he hadn't endeared himself to Iran's many poor people. And he began to make matters worse.
3: First of all, the Shah himself grew more autocratic and less tolerant. Secondly, he, he tended to control elections more closely. And then I think the major disrupting element was the huge explosion in oil prices in 19, I think it was 73, and the infusion of so much money into the economy in such a short period um, caused enormous disruption. A very rapid influx of migrants from rural areas into the cities, creating shanty towns. That's really when it began to seem. To me, at least, there was a kind of a malaise in the society as a whole.
0: Demonstrations began in the holy city of Qom. Iranian people largely followed the Shia branch of Islam, and the clergy in Qom were hugely influential. Soon, the demonstrations reached the capital, Tehran.
3: There were these mass marches which, which brought in hundreds of thousands of people, um, and they were really quite... Uh, uh, impressive to see.
0: He watched them from the fourth floor, from his friend's office.
3: And there were masses of people, uh, and clearly, given their dress and the women in veils, clearly from the working-class districts of Tehran. Um, What struck me was not, of course, only the large numbers, but the fact that most of these uh, groups coming together to join the main demonstration uh, from the side streets were being led by members of the clergy.
0: But it wasn't only the poor and the religious who joined in.
3: Yes, I think the protests were um, joined by a very wide swath of Iranian society. Um, and many among, you know, my own friends and, and colleagues um, became, as it were, revolutionaries.
0: And the day the Shah fled the country, January 16th, the streets of Tehran filled with celebration.
3: I suddenly heard a loud no- uh, honking of car horns and, and a jeep went by and a young man was standing up in the jeep holding up a, a newspaper, the Keihan newspaper, with huge headlines saying, Shah raft, the, the Shah has gone.
0: But with the streets filled with a mishmash of Marxists, Islamists, and everything in between, what would come next wasn't totally clear.
3: Oh, I remember remember very well Khomeini's return to um, Iran on February 1st, 1979. The enormous crowds that greeted him.
0: This was the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, who had long called for a radical version of Shia Islam in which the country was run by the clerics. He had spread his message in exile. Now he returned to riotous acclaim and quickly took power. Professor Bakash, who is from Iran's Jewish minority, was not celebrating.
3: Um, All across the streets of Tehran, and I imagine other cities, we woke up to see young men armed with machine guns patrolling the streets. These eventually became the Revolutionary Committees and the Revolutionary Guard. And they were, by and large, all loyal to Khomeini.
0: Professor Bahash left in 1980, fearing he would not be safe, and hasn't returned since. So now Khomeini was in power, what would his ideology actually look like? And how would he win over the more secular revolutionaries?
4: You had a whole array of, of different forces uh, who were championing uh, the working class. And the left was very well organized uh, and it had, a, it had a language, an ideological language of social justice.
0: Azadeh Mouveni is an analyst and author who used to live in Iran.
4: And so the Islamists had to really kind of come in and try and outflank these leftists with, who had, you know, an economic program as well.
0: Ms. Mouaveni says this is why Khomeini, as well as introducing Islamic rulings, did things like focus on the working classes, introduce subsidies, and expand education. And he incorporated a ferociously anti-American rhetoric. He supported a group who took over the American embassy in Tehran and held 52 Americans for more than a year. Iran's relationship with America never recovered. But domestically, Khomeini's stance was seen as bravely anti-imperialist. Amid all this, in 1980, another cataclysmic event:
2: the Iraqis set out to take Iran's main oil center, Abadan. Iranian forces nibbled at Iraqi frontiers.
4: It was it was a moment where Iran seemed in chaos. It seemed weak, uh, and and there were you know any kind of historical rivalries between Iran and, and, its, uh, and its Arab neighbors.
0: The Iran-Iraq war stretched through most of the 1980s and took hundreds of thousands of lives on both sides.
4: Iran really went through the, the 80s as an isolated, besieged country, you know, at war, feeling itself, um, feeling the whole kind of the West and, and the most powerful countries of the world allied against it. And so its identity as an Islamic republic was very much forged in this moment of siege.
0: Iran's anti-Americanism continues to this day, chanting death to America in Friday prayers, supporting opponents of the United States in the Middle East, and for years building a nuclear program against America's wishes. And yet, many Iranians study in the U.S., and Ms. Moaveni says many people in Iran are Western-focused.
4: And this is kind of the tension and the drama of the Islamic Republic is, is this, is kind of trying to act out this uh, strategic um, independence with a the, with the population that's very middle class, that's very cosmopolitan really, um, and has expectations that don't, um, that don't really allow for Iran to be politically and economically isolated.
0: To see where this complex and troubled country might head next, I'm joined by The Economist's Middle East editor, Roger McShane. Roger, is the Iran of today the the way the revolutionaries would have hoped it would be in 1979?
1: I mean, in some ways, yes, at least the the hardline revolutionaries. You know, for four decades, the clerics have been able to maintain power. That's an accomplishment. Um, Iran is still a pretty conservative place, at least under the law. Uh, They increased university enrollment. They've uh, improved services for the poor. Um, But on the whole, I think Khomeini probably would be uh, appalled with the level of corruption, especially um, with regard to the Revolutionary Guard. Uh, Those are the armed forces that supported the revolution and that Khomeini consolidated into a single force um, in the decades since. Uh, They have extended their reach into all aspects of society um, and, and most of the economy.
0: Iran clearly projects sort of anti-American sentiment, but there there have been some bright spots in, in the relationship. Tell us about how the Obama administration dealt with Iran.
1: Yeah, there seemed like uh, there was potential for a new era in relations under Obama. He came into office um, pledging to reach out to Iran, and uh, Iran's reformist president, Hassan Rouhani, uh, took him up on this offer. Um, and over the course of a couple of years, uh, they were able to reach a deal under which Iran curbed its nuclear program um, in return for sanctions relief. And I think uh, both Rouhani and Obama thought that would lead to uh, even warmer relations. How then has that progressed
0: into the Trump era? How have things changed now?
1: Well, th- there were always concerns about the nuclear deal on the part of America, on the part of Israel. Um, and those concerns revolved around Iran's continuing... Uh, testing of missiles and its meddling in the region, in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Lebanon. Um, And Donald Trump, uh, opposed to to all things Obama, uh, yanked America out of the nuclear deal uh, last year. And he's really surrounded himself with what you would call Iran hawks, people like John Bolton, his national security advisor, people like Mike Pompeo, his secretary of state, who really paint Iran as the epitome of evil. And Bolton goes so far as to say uh, that America ought to have bombed Iran uh, and calls for a
0: regime change in Iran. So what should Western countries be aiming for? What should their objectives be at this point?
1: Well, I think the West would like to see Iran stop pursuing a nuclear weapon, stop testing missiles, and stop meddling abroad. The question is, how do you do that? And, And that's the real difficult part because it's who are you dealing with in Iran? And it's, it's not always clear. Are you dealing with the clerics and the Revolutionary Guard who, who hold the real power or are you dealing with reformists like Rouhani, like the elected uh, government, um, who are much more willing to talk to America um, but don't make the big decisions? And then you also have to consider the public, which is mostly young, educated uh, and Western-oriented And what you really want to do is cause pain to that top level, to the Revolutionary Guard and to the clerics um, without alienating uh, the public. So targeted sanctions is one way to do it and that's something that the administration has pursued. Um, But that also somewhat plays into the hands of the clerics because one of the main tenets of the revolution was this anti-imperialism or more specifically anti-Americanism. Uh, and so American hostility gives the regime a sort of raison d'etre. It's one of their justifications for staying in power as long as they have.
0: Roger, thanks very much. My pleasure.
5: World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world.
0: It's the quintessential Baby Boomer brand. One of these motorcycles is a big 1,000cc Harley-Davidson. Born in the USA, 116 years old, a symbol of freedom and adventure on the open road. Until you've been on a Harley-Davidson, you haven't been on a motorcycle. But the American brand has fallen victim to escalating trade tensions. More than that, sales in the key domestic market have been down for eight consecutive quarters. And the identity that got the brand this far might, in the end, be its undoing.
6: I went to the Harley Museum in Milwaukee, which was great fun. It's a very impressive museum.
0: Vendelin von Bredow is a correspondent for The Economist.
6: Harley has such a proud, long history. But if I looked around at who else was at the Harley Museum with me, it was really largely middle-aged or even older, white men, very few women, very few people of color. And in a way that explains quite a lot about Harley's problems. Harley's main customers, the baby boomers, are slowing down. So it's a demographic that's aging, that's slowing down. And they're not really buying many new Harleys anymore. And Harley has so far not been able to replace that group. So neither millennials or just in general younger people aren't buying Harleys, nor are many women or minorities.
0: And why do you suppose that is?
6: Well, for the younger generation, the brand is simply not cool anymore. It's a brand that's associated with their dads and maybe even their granddads. And they liked it because it had this bad boy image and it it symbolized freedom and America's endless scenic roads and adventure. But with the young generation, it simply doesn't resonate that much. Harleys are big and unwieldy. I mean, a young, successful urbanite will find a Harley just simply not very practical in town.
0: Right. And and what is Harley doing to address this decline, this sort of waning popularity?
6: So Harley launched last summer a five-year plan to appeal to a wider audience, and they are launching something like 16 new models. Most of the attention is on its new electric bikes, the Livewire model, and the idea is that younger people, but also women and minorities, will take to these new, lighter, and indeed electric bikes.
0: That's really quite an amazing thing to think about Harley doing electric bikes because it's so, you know, it, it's a so resolutely sort of gearhead, you know, the, the, the big fat engines and, and certainly the sound that comes with them.
6: Yes, so the sound of the traditional Harleys is often compared to potato, potato potato. It's a very distinct sound. Electric bikes don't really make a sound, but Harley added a sound to make it a little bit more Harley-like, and apparently it sounds a bit like a jet engine. So the idea is to bring back a little bit of the mystique of the old Harley via sound.
0: So it's not just this sort of demographic shift or the sort of creeping uncoolness that Harley suffers from. There's been quite a lot of influence from the trade war, isn't that right?
6: Yes. So Harley used to be very popular with President Donald Trump because he considered, and probably rightly so, many Harley bikers his voters. But that changed when he imposed tariffs on imports of steel and aluminum because Harley was quite badly hit by the tariffs and it's adding a lot of cost to its production this year Year, the company expects the cost to rise to 120 million. And um, to mitigate that additional cost, Matt Levitich, Harley's boss, announced plans to move production of motorcycles destined for the European market out of America. So to avoid new European Union duties that were introduced in response to President Trump's tariffs.
0: So that, that can't quite be what president trump wanted when he imposed these tariffs this, this sort of protectionist push that then pushes a, an american classic brand out of the country altogether it's a it's a bit of a backfire to, to borrow a motoring term
6: yes that's the contrary to what he expected to happen and that's why he was so annoyed by the way harley davidson please
3: build those beautiful motorcycles in the usa please okay Don't get cute with us. Don't get
6: cute. And he got quite upset and even suggesting that bikers should boycott the company in response to them moving some production abroad.
0: But did you think that the EU tariffs were designed to target Harley in particular, to take aim at this specifically very American brand?
6: Not necessarily Harley in particular, but very well-known American brands in particular. And of course, Harley is one of them. Bourbon, I think, was another one. Europeans were very upset about these tariffs. And they know if they target American brands that are very well-known, that'll be hugely upsetting. So they made their response to maximum effect.
0: Do you get the sense that Harley might have wanted to move that production to make some of these changes anyway, and the trade war was a bit of convenience for them?
6: Possibly, because they had been doing poorly before last year. You know, the sales had started to slow down before 2018. So I think there had been plans before, but quite possibly they speeded up those plans to move some production abroad.
0: And so what's your take, having given some thought to to the the challenges that that Harley faces? Do you think they'll be able to to bring new Harley lovers into the fold? Or or do you think we're seeing a sort of slow decline of an American classic?
6: Tourist allowed? I mean, it's a 116 year old business and it has been through very tough times before. It almost went under in 1981 when America was in recession and the Japanese makers of motorcycles dumped unsold inventory onto the American market at extremely low prices. At the time, interestingly, uh Harley's leadership persuaded the government to respond with tariffs. So at the time, it was helped by American tariffs and also by new management that sort of revived the heavy retro look of the 1940s. But... My take is that Harley is not close to going under now, but it's a very cyclical business, and at the moment they are going through a very rough patch. And in order to improve, they really have to become cool again. Now, the question is is the CEO the right person, the current CEO, to do that? I think all will depend on whether his five year plan will work and improve sales.
0: Vendelin, thanks a lot for your time.
6: It's been a pleasure.
0: Numbers and data are central to our reporting here at The Economist, and I've been asking correspondents to drop by with an interesting number that's arisen in the course of their research. Today, it's Tim Cross, who writes about technology for The Economist. Tim, you've, you've brought me a number, I think.
2: Uh, I've actually brought you two numbers, one or five, and you can choose between them. One or five what? Uh, one or five dead people who are dead by your hand.
0: Um, I, I hope that this is a, a thought experiment.
2: It is a thought experiment. It's, it's a sort of semi-famous one called the trolley problem. There is a train going down the tracks. Some evildoer has roped five people to the track ahead and one person to a branch line, and the train's coming to some points. You're standing by the lever that controls the points. If you do nothing, the five people die. You can pull the lever and then only one person dies, but they've died by your hand. Okay. Um, why have you brought me this
0: this choice to make now?
2: So it used to be a sort of semi-obscure problem in in sort of, you know, ethics and philosophy. These days it's much more well-known because it's often used by people who are thinking about self-driving cars and how they might behave on the roads to sort of really make obvious the idea that we're going to have to code some ethical behavior into these things and it's not always clear what people would like that ethical behavior to be. Um, But late last year, a group of researchers published a paper in which they had the idea of just asking a whole load of ordinary people what they thought. So they set up a website called The Moral Machine, which generates scenarios like this, and you get to vote on which one you think is is ethically preferable. They ended up with a whole load of data, about 40 million decisions from people in, in hundreds of different countries.
0: Right, and you, um, have, <laughs> you've also brought me this software I get to add to the data set. So my, my first choice, a uh, car is heading towards a pedestrian crossing. One person is crossing, one person in the car. The brakes are out. I have to choose uh, whether to make the car swerve into a concrete barrier um, resulting in the death of either one woman or one homeless person
2: um, uh, I mean this is maybe not the kind of choice you want to be making on radio right um, let's 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 skip that that part actually what
0: do the data show from the millions of others
2: generally there's a sort of a strong preference for preserving young people over old people so the most sympathetic character was a person with a pram maybe the the sort of oddest thing was that criminals ranked below dogs. So the consensus of of humanity, or at least this 40 million slice of it, seems to be that they're literally subhuman in some sense.
0: Sorry, I'm a little distracted. I've been busily killing people over here. I see that cats also
2: appear in here. Cats also appear um, and are the least sympathetic of all. So humanity overall, it seems, is made up of dog people. There were some regional variations as well, although um, they weren't massively strong. So In places like the Middle East and China, it seems uh, the preference for sparing the younger over the elderly is a little bit weaker. In Latin America and in some of France's former colonies, the preference for humans over animals seems to be a little bit weaker, which kind of raises the question that if you buy a self-driving car and you want it to take you from you know, Europe into the Middle East, maybe it'll need to download a new set of ethical requirements when it crosses the border.
0: Well, that seems crazy, though, the the idea that we have you know, sort of a, a different set of ethics. Is, is the discussion for potential self-driving cars not around kind of resolving a
2: global set of ethics? The point of the exercise isn't necessarily to nail down the rules now. It's to get people thinking about the fact that, you know, at the moment – how you behave on the road is a decision that's essentially delegated to every one of the billions of drivers. If we get to a world where self-driving cars are common, then that's going to change. And uh, the manufacturers who make these things are going to be the ones deciding, you know, all these questions like how much space should I leave when I'm overtaking a cyclist or something like that, which, you know, when you aggregate it over billions of trips is going to affect the casualty stats.
0: Right. Well, um, in the meantime, I should encourage you to drive safe out there. Thanks, Jason. (laughs) Tim, thank you very much. that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.